You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Tonight, America on track for its worst measles outbreak in 25 years. 90 more cases in just one week. Public health officials doing all they can to urge Americans to vaccinate their children, offering free clinics, declaring states of emergency. This anti-vax movement has proven to be very dangerous. Officials are fighting the persistent but widely debunked myths circulating on social media. This is the Evidence-Based Podcast. Evidence-Based Medicine integrates clinical experience and a patient-centered focus with the best available research information. It's a movement which aims to increase the use of high-quality clinical research in clinical decision-making. The evidence-based approach requires new skills of the clinician, including efficient literature research and the application of formal rules of evidence in evaluating clinical literature. This podcast is dedicated to all healthcare providers with a thirst for scientific knowledge, those who are explorers, innovators, and researchers. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Podcast with your host, Dr. Jason Cavallina. Oh, yeah. Dr. J. Max. Number one myth is autism. Yes. What is the argument they make and what's the counter argument? So the argument they make is that the, the vaccines given at one year age uh, cause autism. But we have so much evidence showing that autism uh, signs and symptoms can actually be present from birth. And there's no link to vaccination. Absolutely not. Some parents worry even if vaccines don't cause autism, they have too many chemicals. And what I usually tell them is I inform them there's more aluminum present in breast milk than there is in the vaccine your child's going to get. One nurse trying to spread the truth and save lives. I work with mothers who've lost their children to vaccine-preventable diseases. I'm doing everything I can to prevent another family from suffering a death of a child or from lifelong suffering. Pharmacy Podcast Network, Pharmacy Podcast Nation. We're back. Shady's back. What do you know? Dr. J Max is back. This Welcome is. back, everybody. You're what? Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you. Evidence based podcast, episode one. This is technically episode one. Before it was episode zero. If you're cool and you're launching a podcast, if you want to be super duper cool, you say episode zero as kind of like the stage setter until you actually get into the important stuff. And today is extremely important. What are we talking about, Dr. J. Max? Oh, yeah. Dr. J. Max. Well, today, ladies and gentlemen, we want to know, are you down with the sickness? Are you? Because this is the vaccination show. We're going to talk about uh, vaccinations as a global issue, but we're also going to talk about how healthcare professionals in general can use this issue as a great platform for educating patients and how can you as a healthcare provider be a better communicator. That's what we're going to talk about today, Todd, and we're going to rock it. And we're not going to be all controversial. We're going to talk about facts. We're going to talk about evidence. And at the end of this show, what uh, the, the conglomerate information that I gathered for this show is massive, ladies and gentlemen, talking well over 300 studies, lots of review articles, a textbook so big. Let me see if we can hear it, ladies and gentlemen. Let me see if we can hear it. Could you hear that? <laughs> you hear that? 
That's the textbook we're talking about. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking a huge Cody Kimball textbook. We're talking Paul Offit's book, Bad Advice, or Why Celebrities, Politicians, and Activists Aren't Your Best Source of Health Information. We're talking about the CDC. We're talking about the Pediatric Society of America, uh, or as they're better known as, specifically the Committee of Infectious Disease for the American Academy of Pediatrics. So, we're going to give you links to all of that stuff. What we're not going to do is give you links to 300 articles that you need to read. I don't want you to do that. We're going to teach you the best way to get information. And we're going to do that today. So uh, headline U S measles outbreak are the new normal. Thanks to Europe's epidemic and anti-vaccine campaigns. Experts say, you know, uh, we were talking about this yesterday, Jason, and we said, because of a society and a generation, multi-generations that have been raised without some serious epidemic-like sicknesses, we have become in ourselves immune to the idea of why vaccines are so important. But I'm going to turn on my, um, my doctor Google searching um, as the argue as the person to argue with medical professionals like yourself. And when you start talking about stuff, I'd like to try to bring up some anti-vaxxer information to try to uh, show you what it is from my perspective as the quote unquote anti-vaxxer. Excellent. Excellent. And I think one of the things you definitely, you brought up is definitely important. You have to understand that as a society, um, you know, we have some people, a, a small group of people who remember polio. You know, um, my, my age, I'm 45. Um, I remember having chicken pox. But there are some people in this country who are younger than I am who have no memory of diphtheria that killed teenagers. They have no memory of polio that was a crippler and killer of young adults. And they have no memory of measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella, scarlet fever, and all of these things that would cripple kill and maim children just so that you have an idea of what we're talking about in your head as we as we go on and why vaccines are so 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 important in the time before there were vaccines and we let's even go back to to measles right there were three to four million cases of measles in the united states a year that means that there was approximately 48,000 48,000 hospitalizations for measles Okay, that equated to about 500 deaths per year. Now, that's not 500 deaths of immune compromised people. That's 500 deaths of children who were previously healthy. Okay, that's if you take a child's death, you have to remember that we're not just losing a five year old, which is terrible, but we're losing 80 years of life. Right, we're losing 90 years of life in today's the fact that people are living so long, and we're losing memories, we're losing societal impact, we're losing all of the important things to the family that are gone because that child is dead. When it comes to chicken pox, we were looking at approximately 10,000 hospitalizations per year with 70 to 100 deaths per year, and that's just two diseases that are pretty much eradicated in the U.S. But guess what, guys? They're coming back. New York State 
huge measles outbreak, second largest in the country. They want to shut down public spaces to people who are unimmunized. So there's, again, that societal forgetfulness that when there was a terrible disease outbreak, you were quarantined in your home with a sign on the door that said, polio, you can't come in. We had uh, tuberculosis. Nope. House closed. You can't come in. You can't go out. We're going to watch you. Right. And that's part of the policing power that the uh, health organizations of the United States have when in, when epidemic situations are, are prevalent and they can force inoculations. Right. So that's a, a, a part of the powers of these health organizations in the United States that we don't quite understand, but are there to protect the greater good. So what we what I wanted to really start with today was the idea of how can healthcare providers, healthcare professionals save more lives. Right? And I don't want to talk about, you know, vaccination campaigns and you got to get out there and vaccinate a thousand people in your pharmacy a, a, a month or whatever whatever the corporate goals are for vaccinations, right? We don't want to talk about that. What we want to talk about Todd is being a better communicator, right? Healthcare professionals need to work on communication skills. They need to work on how do you promote science and they want to promote critical thinking. Critical thinking is something that has been lost in the United States, I think. I think one of the things that we have lost is the ability to one, think critically and two, use the skills that you already have to be skeptical, right? We're not talking... Um, uh, conspiracy theorist skepticism. We're talking about normal questions of skepticism. Prove this to me. Show me how this works. Give me the ideas. So in general, I would have to say, Todd, I think that some of us kind of know uh, that healthcare professionals, geez, we're not the best communicators, are we? We do have some problems with, with getting information across. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I, I, I see things from a different perspective because I am that, that patient lay person without the massive education that, that mm -hmm. communicator that, that these non very smart non communicators bring. I I've always been extremely good at communicating because right. to tell you the truth, that's all I had. I, I wasn't a science guy. I wasn't into math that much. I, I went to school and got my degree in business administration and my master's in uh, human resources. So mine was always, I guess, labeled into the soft skill side. And right. Um, right. my argument, my first argument to you as the pharmacist is vaccines cause autism. I mean, that's the biggest one. Right. Right. I definitely, I definitely hear that a lot. So where do we go with that blasting bit of information? Okay. And, and everyone's very scared. Listen, I think that as a pharmacist and as any healthcare professionals, we know autism is a real thing, right? It's a terrible condition that people have. And I would say that um, families want to know a couple of things, right? They're, they're so upset about this autistic child. And there are so many burdens placed upon this family that has uh, one or more autistic children in the family. And they want to know, why did this happen to my child? What caused it? And what can we do about it? How do I fix it? 
Well, we need to come from a place of compassion when we talk to these families. We have to understand that they want answers and they're coming to us for answers. And you have to be able to say to them, I'm sorry that this occurred, but it has been proven that vaccines do not cause autism. So there was a study back in 1998 from Andrew Wakefield that was published in Lancet about the MMR vaccine. And what we want to talk about a little bit today is sort of the idea behind that and why critical thinking is important when it comes to things that come out like this. So you have to understand that vaccines in general, and I'll, I'm going to skip back and forth in time, but you have to understand it as the background, right? How do we get these communication skills across? How do we promote science? How do we promote critical thinking? It's important that we break things down and make them easy to talk about. You want to talk about, uh, I think, more from a place of what I would do for my family, what I would do for my grandmother, what would I do for my child, what would I do for a, pa a patient in end-of-life care? Have I been through end-of-life care? Some of this is empathy, and some of this you can't do until you've gone through it, but you can practice a lot because a lot of us, you know, as healthcare professionals, are seeing a lot of patients a day. They're seeing many, many types of patients. Is a very large cross-section in the retail. There's a very large cross-section of people in the hospital. So you're not just seeing one kind of thing. So we want to be able to get out of that introverted nature that we have. And I think that a lot of healthcare professionals, when they're trying to convey this information, don't want to go out on a limb, right? Don't want to look wrong. Don't want to look like they're going to make a mistake. And so we kind of hedge our bets a little bit. We say, maybe this, maybe that, I'm, you know, maybe I can get you some more information. You have to make the decision, right? So this looks like we're hiding something. We're not hiding anything. A lot of healthcare professionals, like I said, don't want to go out on the limb and say, this is absolutely the way it is, right? Because sometimes it's not always the way it is. And then somebody, you know, will, will argue one way or the other about what you said. So you have to understand in the, in the basic fundamental science behind vaccination is sound, right? It's been proven over and over and over again. Vaccines in general are extremely hard to make. Most vaccines have a 20-year production cycle. They take 20 years to come to market. So there's a lot of background science that goes into creating these vaccines. The Most vaccines, or I think all vaccines, have to go through double-blind, placebo-controlled uh, trials, multi-country, multi-year trials, right, that have to prove that this product and everything in that product, in the liquids, in the biological fluids, are safe and effective. But what's easy about vaccines? It's hard to make, but it's easy to condemn. Science is hard to do, but it's easy to say, oh, poo-poo this, poo-poo that, it's not real. Right? People are working very hard with an altruistic idea to take care of the world. They're creating these vaccines and trying to get rid of these horrible diseases. But then, then here comes a study from Andrew Wakefield, Dr. Wakefield, who has lost his license over this study, who is no longer a, has the ability to practice medicine. Andrew Wakefield published a study in Lancet in 1998 about the MMR vaccine causing autism, titled MMR vaccine causes autism. Okay. What we have to understand is this was not 
a double-blind, placebo-controlled study. That is a gold standard. Do we, Todd, do you know what a double-blind, placebo-controlled study is? Yeah, isn't it when you give somebody basically water and then you give it to them again water to make sure that they're reacting the same way? Right, so a placebo is something that's not the active component in whatever you're studying. Okay. So in this, in this instance, maybe it would be sterile water for injection and one whole group of people just get shot with sterile water. One whole group of people get just an adjuvant. One whole group of people get the actual vaccine, right? So when, it, when it's double blinded, it means that I, as the researcher, you as the subject, don't know what group we're in. Okay. Right? So I have no idea what's going on. All I know is that let's say there's a syringe in front of me, whatever is in it I, is coded. So I don't know what it is. Uh, someone well separated from me actually knows the, the puzzle and how to put it together for who, who, who's who in the study. As the patient, you don't know what group you're in. You just know you're in a group. I give you a shot. Great. We study what happens. Okay. That means, and, and it's big, Right large, large, large patient population, large amount of countries, very diverse groups of people. Everybody is, you know, we're trying to get the largest cross section we possibly can. This is telling us that, okay, this is a valid study. This is like the biggest gold standard study you could have. Well, Andrew Wakefield's study, quote unquote, was not a study. What it was is just a case report, which means I saw this there was no experimental, right? There was no scientific method involved where we create a hypothesis, we test the hypothesis, and then we look at the results and objectively say it either met or, re or rejected the hypothesis, right? A hypothesis, and for, for those of us who don't know what a hypothesis is, it's a question, right? So what this was was really the scientific scientific equivalent of saying that eight children got leukemia after eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich right that's that's how low on the scale of science that study was and as a result of this study thousands of people have died thousands millions of people have gotten sick because parents decided Oh, well, now I have my answer. Now I know. So then the question comes back, how do we now rectify this situation? How do we get to it? And I think what we're seeing is that, is that Andrew Wakefield, as, as terrible as this situation was, actually created a wonderful hypothesis for science to go after. Right? Do vaccines cause autism and there have been well over i think 200 studies to show that vaccinations do not cause autism so then the question comes up todd what causes autism what, do, what like these families who are who are seriously hurt by this situation what do we do what do we tell them they said listen i know a kid who got a shot and next thing you know he had autism you know, or I know that this person had a physical injury from a vaccine, right? After the vaccine, they had trouble walking. You know, after the vaccine, they got this, they got that. The vaccine gave them the disease that they weren't supposed to have. 
So how do we deal with that situation? Yeah. So myth number one, vaccines cause autism. So really appreciate you covering that. From my perspective, playing this part, myth number two, yep. infant immune systems cannot handle so many vaccines. Excellent. Excellent. And so what I would say to that is that, you know, vaccination, your body has two different ways to create immunity, right? You can have the natural immunity, okay? Um, and that would be that you get naturally infected with the product that's out there. You naturally got chicken pox, you naturally get measles. What I would say is that, yeah, okay, your body is going to create a much greater, much more robust response to the disease. Your, the disease itself, the, the measles virus, is going to um, replicate in your body millions of times as opposed to when they get vaccine, uh, get a vaccination or inoculation, and they get, your body then creates, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred uh, replication cycles within the body and you now have immunity to that. You have many more what are called memory T cells and memory B cells in your body when you have natural immunity. But I want to point out a really interesting quote um, that is, uh, and, and I think this also, sorry, comes up to the point that we're talking about with uh, what's wrong with chicken pox parties, right? Why can't we just do that? Well, uh, a really uh, amazing scientist and doctor, pediatrician, Dr. Paul Offit, had a wonderful quote. And he says, the goal of vaccines is to induce immunity that would be acquired after natural infection without having to pay the price of natural infection. Natural infection of these diseases kill. Okay. They hurt they maim, and they ruin lives. There are, they're not benign diseases. So when you see these science deniers, um, the, 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 the Paltrows, the Jenny McCarthy's, um, the, the, the people who are out there in the public and the, and the celebrities saying, well, I'll take the measles uh, any time over the risk of getting autism. Well, I don't know about that. I, the, 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 the disease itself could kill you and the disease itself could maim you and the disease itself could be so bad in, in the situation of like, let's say a meningitis vaccine, right? Or, or a disease like, um, like the flu for these un, um, un, immune compromised children. You know, th these are children who could die or have the rest of their lives ruined. And that's so, what I would say to that. Myth number three kind of coincides with what you're saying. Natural immunity is better than vaccine acquired immunity. So like I was just saying that the, that the natural immunity is, is great, right? I, I have a wonderful um, immunity to chicken pox because I got the chicken pox when I was a kid. Here's the problem with that. Now I now have a virus that lives in my body for the rest of my life that can come back out at any time and give me shingles. A painful, debilitating disease that can, that causes severe pain, depending upon where it comes out, can cause blindness. Okay. Could cause necrotizing fasciitis 
and all and other things that could be extremely dangerous to me as an adult. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go get the Zostravax so that I don't get shingles when I'm older. So I do have natural immunity, but there is a consequence of that natural immunity, right? Even when I, you know, when we deal with, with all other situations, we want to talk about risk reward. Well, the science behind the risk is gone. There is no huge risk to getting vaccinated. Is there a risk, Todd, to get vaccinated? I don't know. There is. Of course there is. Anything that can be good for us can hurt us as well, right? Water can be toxic, Todd. If you drink enough water, it can kill you. Yes. So there are things in life that we all have to weigh the consequences of. So when we get a vaccine, we are taking a product into our body that is not a normal thing that our body would see. We get a great immunity to the disease, but there can be side effects. You can get cellulitis. You can get, you know, um, like a cellulitis is an infection at the injection site. You can get uh, flu-like symptoms. And those flu-like symptoms are awesome. Great. Bring them on because it tells me my body is doing its job. I'm getting immunity. And for that discomfort for a day to then have immunity versus something as terrible as the MMR, um, that's something that I think is, is, is a worthy, is a worthy risk reward. There are problems with, um, you know, things like Guillain-Barre, which is a, which is a disease of the, of the, uh, muscles where, you know, you would have to be predisposed for a problem like that, but we warn people about that. Do you have any musculoskeletal problems? If you do, if you have any movement disorders, you know, we should, we should speak to your doctor again about this to see if it's, see how risky it is for you to get this shot. You know, so that's, there are definitely things that we talk to patients about. And I, I have to say for parents, right, we're asking parents at a young age of their child as new parents, we're asking a lot, right? Our country is asking parents to inoculate 14 different diseases, which could be up to 26 different shots. Sometimes they happen three to five at a time. So as a new yeah. parent, you know, who, who might not have a background in um, things like uh, uh, immunology, basic science, uh, the scientific method, uh, statistics, uh, immunology, virology, right? I don't, I mean, I, I have that background because I was a basic science researcher for a, for a long time, but mom and dad off the street might not have that background. God, half the pharmacists I know don't have that background. A lot of doctors don't have that background to understand it. So where do we go to, to get the idea that, um, that vaccines are safe? Well, like I said, Andrew Wakefield did have cre created for us a great hypothesis. He created a hypothesis that asks, does the MMR cause autism? The scientific community responded to that hypothesis. There have been 17 studies in seven countries to look at what happens um, and, and proved uh, in over, over hundreds of thousands of children that MMR does not cause autism. Okay, so that's how we have to start thinking critically. One of the things that's important for, for 
parents and, and lay people and even the people within our community to understand is that, pardon me, <clears throat> that we have to start thinking critically. We have to know the source of information. Where are we getting it? So a lot of parents will come up to me and say things like, oh, I don't want to get the flu shot this year because I heard it's not that effective. Okay. Where do you get that idea from? Well, in the, in the scientific community, we know that the flu shot is a, what we call a moving target, right? Flu each year in the United States and around the world, the virus mutates and the, the, it can be about three or four different things. And we have to figure out from when it starts to rise up in the, in the East, um, what happens, what, 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 uh, what, sorry, what strains are being exposed to what we should try to build a vaccine for. We try to build that vaccine, get it out to the public and inoculate it. Sometimes we're right on target, right? Sometimes we're only 30% effective, but that's 30% better protection than no protection at all. And in immunocompromised patients, in the children and the elderly, um, that's an important safety measure, right? Because again, flu kills. So what do we have to do about the other part? The parent will say, well, I've looked at the chicken vac vaccine. I've done my research and um, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that I should give my children this vaccine or my child this vaccine. And so I'll say, hey, where did you get your information from? You know, just, you know, let me know so that I can, I can double check it. Maybe, hey, maybe I want to have some resources here in the pharmacy or when I do a community event, I want to have some people. Tell me, tell me what you, what you got. Oh, well, you know, it generally turns out that the patient read a blog or they read a, um, something online about, you know, people's experiences with what happened. Well, to be able to understand the vaccine, you would truly have to read 300 articles on the vaccine and have an expertise like we were talking about in virology, immunology, and all these other things and statistics to understand the science behind the studies. So where can a person go to be, to sort of streamline themselves down to understanding what they need to understand or where can we go as healthcare professionals to say, here's a collective understanding, right? We can go to the advisory groups. Those groups have the collective knowledge in each expertise to come together and say, this is what we should do about vaccination. The two best examples I can give you are the advisory committee for um, immunization practices from the CDC. And the other one is the committee for infectious disease in the American Academy of Pediatrics. Those groups set forth the policy on vaccination and how to handle it in children. They set the schedules. They, you know, they have reviewed the safety data and say, these are the things that we should be doing to protect our children. And so one of the other things we can think about is, Todd, what happens if we just stop immunizing? People die. People die. And so what we, what well, we have two sort of case studies in this area. One is happening now. And one happened back in the 70s in Japan. The one in, in Japan, um, there was, I believe, a meningitis outbreak. And they, they uh, 
previously were, were vaccinating and then they saw no real problems with it. And then the, they were like, oh, well, why do we have to keep vaccinating? So they stopped. Hundreds of thousand people got sick. Right. And then they're like, oh, we better keep doing this. So they go back, they go back to vaccinating. Now we're seeing meningitis. I mean, we're seeing uh, measles outbreaks all over the place. Europe is, it has a huge impact with measles. New York, I believe, uh, Washington State is having a huge outbreak. California. Um, these are the, the, we're now coming back in and seeing the impact of, of this loss of community immunization. And one of the questions that I, I, I hear a lot is, well, Todd, don't you have a personal choice in being immunized? Isn't it your body? Can't you decide what goes in that body? Yes, I can. And can you make that decision for your children? Should be able to. Yeah, of course. Right. Because kids don't have the ability to say yes and no to medical decisions. Right. So then the other, so then you could say, okay, I don't want to immunize my child. Okay. That's, that's fine. Don't immunize your child. Really? It's not fine, but we're not going to go. <laughs> um, but um, so now if enough people make that personal decision not to immunize, we lose protection for all of us. There are some health situations that are community-based and individual-based, globally-based. If enough people don't get immunized, these diseases come back rampantly and they destroy lives. So like I was talking about, there are health organizations within the United States that actually have policing powers and can say during an epidemic, you're getting inoculated and that's it. Now, do we want it to come down to that or is it better to be a advocate for science, to be an advocate for health, to be an advocate for our, our own group of people to say it's better to be immunized than not be immunized. The risks have been proven to be low and, and we all have to be out there drumming that beat. The risk of vaccination is low. The risk of vaccination is low because it's true and it's real. And there is, there is no world conspiracy to do anything else but help people. And so there'll be people out there that'll say, oh, it's just big pharma trying to get everybody immunized, right? It's just big pharma trying to make money. Okay, where, who has the resources to create millions of doses of vaccine and the money to do the research? Like I said, it takes 20 years to create a vaccine. Rototech, from what I understand, took 20 years to make and only, and, and now is, is saving lives against the rotavirus and in infants, right? So do you think that, that if I spent, um, I've been a pharmacist over, over 10 years, and before that I was doing basic science research, do you think that that's something, somebody gets into that to get rich? 
Oh yeah, that's the reason. That's exactly reason. Well, yeah, because you know you're gonna make a ton of money. Yeah. Um, as a license holder, uh, for a vaccine. Yeah. No, <laughs> you're not because it's not yours. You didn't do it, right? You did it, but your your the university you work for has your intellectual property. They're the ones that are gonna they're gonna make any money, if at all. Uh, off of it, but it took 20 years to do. So let's do the math on that. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, hey, you, you're so better I have, busking. I have myth number four is vaccines contain unsafe toxins. We have concern over formaldehyde and mercury. Well, there's a couple. There's so we could talk about aluminum. We could talk about like, the easiest one that people scares them the most is mercury. Mercury is going to make me go crazy. Mercury is going to give me all of these problems. Okay. So when it when we talk about aluminum mercury and the the light so just to call it the light elements and light metals you live on earth right you live on earth Todd I think you I do, do. I, I think I do I mean, yes, my head's I do. in the clouds but I'm supposed to be living on earth um, you're exposed every day to more aluminum and mercury just because they're elements of the earth's crust right than you do in a, in a vaccine in um, in, in, when it comes to mercury that it, that's in vaccines, the mercury in a vaccine is called ethyl mercury. The mercury that lives in the earth, right, is just mercury. It is generally taken up by bacteria and becomes methylated, right? That, that's sort of like the biologically active form, and that becomes methyl mercury. That does harm to people in high levels, right? But in, in a vaccine, Right. Um, and it really comes into question in, in multi-dose vials. So in a multi-dose vial, the syringe goes in and out of the vial a bunch of times. So um, you could get skin bacteria on top or fungi on top of the vaccine. Sometimes when you put the plunger in, uh, the, the needle in to draw out solution, you could be contaminating it, even though you wipe it down and do all the things you're supposed to do. You know, skin cells bacteria, fungi, they're all over the place. They can get in inside your product. So we need a bacteriostatic agent, something that's going to slow the growth of bacteria and fungi. Well, ethyl mercury is a bacteriostatic agent that does that, and it does it very well. Um, and when, back, when it wasn't in products, we would see that later doses, like dose 8, 9, or 10 of a, of a 10-dose vial, those patients could be at risk for cellulitis and, and other infections of the skin. So as a bacteriostatic agent, it, it served its role very, very well, didn't make anybody sick. And the, the actual amount of mercury you would get is far, far, far below any mercury that you would get in your body just by drinking a glass of water. You are exposed to more methyl mercury in a glass of water than you are um, after an injection of ethyl mercury in a vaccine. Now, one of the things due to the concern <clears throat> that it was removed, right? Um, they want to, they, they, the quote was, we've made a safe vaccine even safer. Okay. So I don't know how, I don't know the logic behind that, but <laughs> right. If it was already safe, it's safe. You didn't have to take anything out, but they did it. 
And, and then that's where we are with that. Um, and so that, you know, your actual, again, your actual exposure to mercury and even aluminum, um, just by living on earth and eating and drinking the products of this earth, whether they're animal, vegetable, or mineral, you actually have a greater exposure to those things than you do by getting a vaccine. How about, um, this next myth vaccines can infect my child with the disease it's trying to prevent. Great, great question. And you know, vaccines basically have two forms. One is a live vaccine. Okay. Uh, but they are attenuated live vaccine. So attenuated means that they have been, they've had their virulence removed from them. They're, they're alive uh, they are the, the 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 product that could cause the disease, but they've been muted down, right? So they don't really have the components to to get you as sick as they would if they were the real thing. The other situation with vaccines like flu is that they're killed, they're dead. They are if uh, if a virus is made out of a protein coat, it has legs and a head and stuff like that. It it kind of looks like a maybe looks like a little bug. Right, is sort of the, the diagram we always make uh, of a vaccine, a head, a body with these little legs that come sticking out the sides. Um, the virus at that point is broken up into a bunch of different pieces and the parts of the virus that cause an immune response are put into the vaccine. And so that those are killed vaccines and those vaccines will never cause you to have the disease that the that the vaccine is trying to prevent so for 99.9 percent .9 of the vaccines that your child will get none of them will cause the disease now the greatest question comes out is oh i got a flu shot i got the flu the next day i mean i i hear it if i hear it once a flu season i hear it a hundred thousand times yep so what actually happens is that the flu shot takes about two weeks for you to get full immunity because of the amount of time it takes to replicate in the body. Because again, it's a dead virus. It doesn't have the virulence that, a, that the full born virus has. So it takes about two weeks. In that time, you were either, and, and sorry, and flu has about a week long inoculation period. So you walk past somebody, they have the flu, they sneeze, they cough, they breathe, you get droplets on your body, uh, you inhale them, you have the flu now. It's going to take you about a week to show symptoms of the flu. Okay, so now we're talking these overlapping periods of time. You're in the middle of flu season, you get your flu shot, you get the flu three days later. You were exposed to the flu a week ago. All right. That's just, that's just the, how it works portion of how you got sick, <laughs> you know? So there is there, the best advice again is to get your flu shot early, probably on the East coast, even maybe the West coast. I think you could probably start October, November would be a great time. I do believe most flu shots in the, in the retail pharmacy setting are probably available in August. Um, I don't know that that's the best time. Um, maybe sort of the October, um, beginning of November time before, think about Thanksgiving, before you go mingling with your family and they're going to get you sick from God knows what, um, you want to probably get your flu shot two weeks before that, right? So Halloween, oh, I, I should probably go get my flu shot. 
and then you'll be protected. Right? And even if you do, if you did get the flu, you're not going to get it as bad because you got the flu shot. But again, like I said, it could be 30% effective. So we want to be careful to get it early and do the things that we're supposed to do to protect ourselves in general from getting sick, hand washing, sterilize, not sterilizing, but sanitizing our products, washing our fruits and vegetables, cleaning our, our cutting boards, you know, uh, repeated and multiple hand washing throughout the day is probably the best thing that you can do to keep yourself from getting sick. Hand sanitizers really aren't the best thing for you. Um, they do get rid of some of the good bacteria that's on your hands that you do need again to protect yourself. Sort of that natural immunity that we have in our bodies. Any other good myths that you'd like me to, to hit today? So I like the last one. We don't need to vaccinate because infection rates are already so low in the United States. Right. Well, I think that we've proven that they can come roaring back. Right. Yes. So these diseases, though they are eradicated, right, that just means that we've stopped them from infecting humans. It doesn't mean they're not on the surface of this earth. It doesn't mean that there aren't other forms that could mutate and get us sick. Okay. What it means is that the vaccinations are working. Yay, they work. Right. We don't have polio. We don't have measles, mumps, and rubella. Oh, wait. Yes, we do. Um, we don't have chicken pox. Okay. We don't have the, these poor children and teenagers dying. You know, the, the risk of being a kid, being a baby, as difficult as it is to, to, to have a child, the, the risk of child death is so low now that it's, that it's safer to bring a child into the world. They don't have to face these diseases because they're being inoculated against them. And if we stop immunizing, these diseases are going to come roaring back. And we can see it in New York. We can see it in Europe. We can see it in, in, in uh, California and in, in Washington. And these people who are, who are refusing the vaccinations are, are hurting themselves. They're hurting their children. And they're hurting the rest of the world. And it's, it's, it's something you said yesterday, uh, Jason, that we have to be empathetic to the concerns of, uh, of our, of our patients, of our clients, of the public. Um, don't dismiss them. Don't, um, you know, be combative. I think there's a way to leverage the data and the science to help educate but if someone's made up their mind and they're not going to pay attention to what you have to say as the medical professional, um, it, it would be better to leave that setting and that relationship on a positive note than uh, be combative to give them another bad taste in their mouth or another bad memory with a um, with an educated healthcare professional as you, the pharmacists are and as the medical medication expert um, should have something to say about vaccines. So I like this episode. This made sense. Um, what's next on for uh, evidence-based podcast, Jay? Well, we have it up in the air. We're juggling a couple things. It's either going to be uh, a talk about CBD oil 
and uh, maybe we'll discuss CBD and, and if is it safe and effective or is it, it does it have a lot of drug drug interactions? And the other portion we were thinking about maybe was um, the other evidence based medicine and and supplements. Sounds great. Right. Evidence based podcast at J Max, Dr. J at Dr. J Max. Uh, you're on Twitter and Instagram there. Uh, send us a message, uh, make a comment, tell us what you'd like to hear on the evidence based podcast. But with that, we're out. Ladies and gentlemen, have a wonderful day. Bye. There we go.